We are continuing in Colossians. This is our, uh, our third week in. We uh, are reading this letter that Paul wrote to uh, the believers in Colossae, these saints, these holy ones that he's been writing to. I want to keep a couple things in front of us, which is that Paul didn't start this church. He started a lot of the churches that he wrote letters to. This is not one of those. Uh, he had actually never visited this church. And so he's writing to a people that he had just heard a lot about and had been praying for uh, since he heard about their faithfulness and their love for uh, all the saints. And now he wants to kind of uh, send this letter to be able to speak into their situation, which we'll see here uh, coming up in a few weeks that there was what we call syncretism going on in that area, which meant there were people coming in saying, uh, you know, Jesus is great. He's fine, right? But there's more you need to add to him. Like, he's good, but you need to add these other uh, levels of deeper knowledge, these deeper levels of spiritual experience uh, to what Christ has done. And, uh, and he's making a case here early on. In fact, I'll reference chapter one quite a bit when we get into chapter two. Uh, he's making a case for the fullness of Christ, that Christ is enough, that Jesus was enough, what he did was enough, who he is is enough. And we'll see that as we get into our, our passage today. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are uh, just so thankful for your truth, so thankful for this, this little letter that was written a couple thousand years ago from the Apostle Paul to this, this church, uh, this little church. Uh, now we get to receive it. Our little church here gets to receive these truths. And um, we are just so thankful to be able to receive these. May we truly receive them. May we truly have that understanding, that full knowledge that comes from not only hearing these things and receiving these things, uh, but allowing these things to transform our lives, allowing these ideas to transform the way we think about who you are and, and our trust level of, of you. May we just see um, you clearly. May we see your son clearly uh, this morning as we uh, take a look at this passage. And I uh, just pray that your spirit would do all the teaching this morning. pray this all in your name. Amen. So this is where we start. We're starting in verse 15 of chapter 1. And this is what it says. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, of course, uh, it starts with a pronoun, he. So the question is, who, right? Uh, easy just to look right back at the context of where we came from uh, in uh, verse 13 and 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. That's actually talking about God, the Father. And transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So now it's talking about this Son, um, this Son who, um, who was the means by which the Father rescued us from the domain of darkness. Remember we talked about last week the fact that he went kind of behind enemy lines and, and took us back from the darkness. From, the, from this, uh, this master that was controlling us, this, this dictatorship that was controlling us. And so we have this son who, in whom this work was done, and now it, it, uh, this section starts to describe who this son is. And he starts with, he is the image of the invisible God. The visible image of the invisible God. 
Uh, and an image is just, just a picture. Of course, they didn't have pictures back then. We have pictures today, right? You take little photographs um, on a camera or on our phones, usually. Um, and, uh, and that's an image. Uh, their images at that time um, were sculptures and drawings, and um, a lot of times this term is used of the stamp on a coin. Uh, the, the, the Caesar's image would be stamped on a coin, uh, and it would, it would represent the, the person, right? Um, give you a little example here. Anybody know who this is? Did you, did you watch the movie or you could just see it? A little bit hard to see, but do you guys know who this is? Tom Hanks, right? Tom Hanks. Um, well, how do you know that's Tom Hanks? It's from Elvis, right? Uh, the, the other one's from Elvis, yep. Uh, how, do, how do you know that's Tom Hanks? You've seen him? You've met him? You've shook hands with him, looked him in the face? Now you've seen images of him, right? But you've seen enough images of him that now you're convinced that you would say, you might even stake your life on the fact that that's Tom Hanks, right? Um, now, uh, certain, so images can, can obviously tell us something or, 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 or reveal something about the person. Some images are harder to see, like we had a little harder time with this one, right? Uh, now, now that you know it's Tom Hanks, if you really look, can you kind of see it? Uh, a little bit of, of, of his, his face. But he's got a lot of uh, prosthetics and stuff that are kind of um, keeping us from seeing the clear image there, right? The eyes, uh, yeah, the eye is definitely. And his nose is kind of similar, right? Um, now, this is what's being talked about here. Um, Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of his glory. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. So images sometimes can be hard to, to determine who the person is. They can be obscured. They can be out of focus. Jesus is not out of focus. He is the exact representation, the perfect picture, the undeniable picture of God the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. John 14 uh, this is the apostle Philip uh, talking to Jesus. And he said, Lord, show us the Father. Show us God. We want to see him. And, it, and it'll be enough for us. That's all we need is to see him. Look at Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, have I been with you for so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Right? He was the picture. No other uh, image was needed. He was the perfect picture of God. They didn't need to see God because they saw Jesus and that was enough. It, it was, he, because he's the full image, the full representation of him. Colossians 2.9 reflects this too. For in him, Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Honestly, we can now say in regards to Jesus, I know what God is like because I know what Jesus is like. Right? Because Jesus is fully and completely like the God of the universe. He is the God of the universe. Then he says a second thing about him. He says he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, uh, this... 
term firstborn is kind of interesting. Uh, it's definitely a cultural thing that I think is a little bit hard to describe, honestly. I, 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 probably of all the concepts that we're talking about this morning, this was the one I had the hardest time kind of relating to, to common experience today because we don't really have something like this. This does mean, um, like, like the term means the first one that was birthed, right? So in a family, this would be the, the first son that ever existed in time, right? Um, but that's not really what firstborn is about. And in fact, if we push that too far here, um, then we'll actually probably misunderstand things. And there have been heresies that have been based on this that misunderstand things. In fact, in the 3rd and 4th century, there was this movement called Arianism in which they said Jesus was not God, he was created by God. Well, why? They'll use this verse. He was the firstborn, right? God created him. God birthed him. Now, we had a couple of councils in, in the fourth century that kind of dealt with that and addressed that and, 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 and yeah, kind of put that out of the way. Uh, but that same uh, heresy actually reoccurred in the 19th century and still exists today. Anybody know what religion we have today that uses Arianism? The Jehovah's Witness. That's, that's their, their, Arian, their, their Arian is what they are in their thinking, that Jesus was a created being, right? Not God himself. The problem is uh, you have to stop at this verse in order to get that, right? Because look at the very next verse. For by him all things were created. Right? He wasn't a created thing. He created all things. Right? Uh, there's no way. And in fact, uh, you know, the, the Jehovah's Witness recognized this, and so they've, uh, they've modified their translation of the Bible, and it says, uh, for by him all other things were created. They put in the word other, which does not exist in the Greek. Um, so firstborn doesn't really mean first birth. It, it does mean uh, first in origin, first in time. Um, he, was, he was before anything. Before anything was created, he was, right? Um, first Peter, uh, oh, there you go. There's a couple pictures of, there's, there's Arius. Hi, Arius. Uh, Jehovah's Witness there. All right. Uh, John 17, 24 says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Right? Which is an interesting thought if you think about it. I mean, we've spent a lot of time, of course, if you've been in the church for very long, we know who Jesus is, we understand his deity, we understand, uh, you know, these concepts don't seem very uh, outlandish to us. But think about the fact that Jesus was a real human being who walked the earth, looked like most other uh, Jewish men of his time. He looked pretty normal. But that normal-looking guy was a guy who had existed, was conscious, was, because he was God himself, existed prior to the creation of all things. That's crazy. That's, a, that's, a, that's an unusual idea, right? Um, it also means first in rank, and it primarily means first in rank, firstborn does. This is the only thing I could come up with that was even close to the idea of firstborn, because we don't have firstborn in rank in families today, right? But I thought of the uh, British monarchy, 
they have a firstborn thing that goes on there, right? So you have, uh, you had Queen Elizabeth, right? And uh, she had King Charles, right? The, 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 what is he, the second, third, fourth? How many we got there? Third. Uh, so uh, he was the firstborn son, right? Uh, she also had a couple of other kids. Um, there's Queen Anne uh, next to Charles. Uh, you got Andrew and you got uh, Edward, okay? Princess Anne, Prince Edward, Andrew, Prince Edward, right? And you would think they're all her kids, right? They, uh, if you're thinking in time, you know, first, second, third, fourth, that would seem like the rank that would exist, right? But in the monarchy, the way it works is it's all about the firstborn, right? Um, so you have King Charles, who is now king, right? Um, and if you watch, if you look at the line of succession, the next is not Queen Anne. In fact, Queen Anne, or Queen Anne, Princess Anne, um, is 16th in line for the throne. She has very little power. That like, that's like in America um, being the Secretary of Veteran Affairs, <laughs> right? Way down the list, right? Um, and, and actually, the, the second-born son, which is Prince Andrew, is eighth in line for the throne. Edward is 13th in line for the throne. I think I'm closer to the presidency than either of those guys, right? Like, like it's, it's, they're way down the line. Because what matters in the British monarchy is who was born first, right? That's not only even, that's not even close, right? But that's the closest I could scratch to this idea of firstborn. The firstborn in an ancient Near Eastern family was the child, was the, was, was the important child, right? They loved all their children, right? But the important one in the family was the firstborn son because that firstborn son was the one who was going to take over the family when the father died. That meant uh, more financial responsibility, um, more responsibility for the, the state and the family and caring for the family. In fact, firstborn sons got a double portion of inheritance because they had to take care of more things. They became responsible for the family. So the moment that the, that the father died, they were in charge. They were the father of the family. They were, they were more in charge of the family than the mother was in charge of the family. That's the firstborn, okay? Firstborn in, in rank, in priority. This is reflected in, um, in a psalm, Psalm 89. This is a messianic psalm talking about Jesus. It says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. It's here the, the, the priority there of, of power, that it's a place of power. It's uncontested power in the family. And Jesus is the uncontested firstborn over all creation. Jesus stands unique in all creation in that he existed prior to all creation, right? And he is supreme over all creation. He is the, the central figure of all creation. So many um, philosophies and um, religions and cults and, and Christian heresies, like the one I shared, uh, Arianism there, try to limit Jesus to, um, to just a man, right? A great man. Some of them are like, man, he's like one of the best men that's ever listed, or ever, ever listed, ever lived. Um, he's really great. He's a great man. He's a great moral teacher. 
maybe, maybe, you know, top three of all the greatest men who have ever lived, but he's just a man. Jesus is really, really good. He's really, really moral, but he's just a man. Now, Jesus stands alone of all men, stands above all creation, has first rights to all creation. What he says goes for the human family. What he says goes for the whole created order. That's who this man who is God is. Well, why do we give him this standing? What gives him this standing? Look at 16. It says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Again, I just, I, when I read this, this is such an exalted view of Jesus, which we should have. But just think about the people who were reading this who actually met Jesus face to face. He looked like a normal man, right? But this normal man, all things were created by this guy who looks pretty normal, right? All things have been created through this guy who looks pretty normal. All, all, all things have been created for this guy who looks pretty normal. He is the creator of all things. And so it's, it's the logical reason why he should be firstborn. All things were created by him. All things were created through him and for him. In fact, what he's appealing to is what's called creator's rights. Uh, creator's rank, creator's rights. Now the idea is this. Now some philosophers want to argue this, but here's the idea. Roll with it. If I create something, then by the fact that I create that something, that something can never exceed me in importance. Right? Made things are by nature inferior to the one who made the thing. Because if that made thing could be uh, above me, more than me, then I couldn't create it, right? I, ha I would have to be more than it to create it. You guys following that? We're getting philosophical here, right? Uh, and so we'll say, well, wait, I can create a, uh, a crane that can lift a bunch more weight than, uh, than I can lift, right? Yes, but that crane can't make a crane, Right? It's, it's my ingenuity that created the crane that can lift the weight. So by logic, this, and this is the assumed logic of this, of this passage, by logic, anything that's created is inferior to the creator, right? Jesus has to be exalted above all. He has to be fir firstborn above all creation because he created it all. So everything else has to be subservient to him. Everything else has to be below him, less than him. Now, let's get into the all things. Uh, all things is, is a term that means to view the whole of something by looking at each individual part, okay? It's like when you get a 24-pack of soda. Um, what you're getting is a box of soda, right? But, but it's, it's labeling 24 individual cans, right? You're focusing on the, the individual parts that make up the whole. That's the idea here, that every single thing was that we could ever name or think about, or, I mean, we could just sit here and talk about everything we know, right? Everything we know in creation was created by Jesus, was created for Jesus, 
and remains in existence because he intentionally wills it to remain in existence. He gets a little specific here where he says both in the heavens and on earth. Keep in mind, in this context, heavens here just means uh, everything up there, the sky, the universe. Um, I've been a little enthralled with the James Webb Space Telescope. Anybody been looking at these pictures? Um, pretty amazing, right? This, every picture you see here is not computer-generated. Not a single one has anything computer-generated in this. this is, these are live pictures of our universe, right? And every single part of the universe was created by Jesus, was created for Jesus, and remains in existence because he intentionally wills it. He blew that into existence, right? He painted that on the sky. For him, by him, and remains in existence because he intentionally wills it. I like that one, Jupiter. That's cool. So everything up there, but also everything down here, right? In the heavens and on the earth. Everything we know here was created by Jesus, for Jesus, and remains in existence because he intentionally wills it. Every ocean, every parcel of land, every plant, every animal, every bug, Every whale created by Jesus, for Jesus, and remains in existence because he intentionally wills it. Every person, good, bad, tall, small, you, me, were created by Jesus, for Jesus, and remains in existence because he intentionally wills it. Everything man-made is really God-made, right? Every car, every truck, every uh, house, every skyscraper were made by materials he created using the engineering of minds that he created, erected by hands and strength that he gives, all created by him all created by Jesus, for Jesus, and remain in existence because he intentionally wills it. Every talent, every skill, every ability. He goes on and says everything visible and invisible. We talked a lot about, a vis a lot about visible things, but also the invisible things. The wind, radiation, sound waves, our souls, angels, demons, all created by Jesus, for Jesus, and remain in existence because he intentionally wills it. He says thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. He's, he's talking about powerful people, all different levels of powerful people, and their power were created by him, for him, and remain in existence because he intentionally wills it. Every king that has ever existed, every governmental power that's ever existed, every president, every governor, every mayor, every judge, every boss you have ever had, 
were created by Jesus for Jesus and remain in their position of power because he intentionally wills it. Police officers, people with uh, self-made power and influence like uh, Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, right? Those guys have power. They wield power because they have the financial means to wield power. Created by Jesus, for Jesus, and remain in existence because he intentionally wills it. But not only powers we can see, but powers we can't see. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Some of the same words used here are used in Colossians. Every unseen spiritual power, and those exist, they're all around us all the time, but they were all created by Jesus, for Jesus, and remain in existence because he intentionally wills it. In fact, part of the Colossian heresy uh, included tapping into spiritual forces, using their power and their authority to meet your own needs. All of those spiritual powers were created by him, for him, and remain in existence because he intentionally wills it. I've heard people say, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of the spiritual world. Right? I've seen too many movies that, that, that just freak me out, right? Because there's scary, unseen forces out there. They're, they're nothing. They're nothing compared to his power. He created them. Verse 17 he finishes up this section and he says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Before all things can actually have two different meanings. Um, it's either talking about he's before all things in time or he's um, above all things in position. Both, both of those senses exist here. I don't know which one it is. Honestly, scholars don't know which one it is, which, which he's talking about. But both are true, right? He existed prior before all things in time. He's already talked about that. And he is above all things in position. And he holds all things together. I always, when I think about this phrase, I always think of atoms. I think of, of, of science, right? That every single atom, uh, every electron, every proton and, and the nucleus there, he's holding that together, right? And every electron that's going around, like he is moving every electron around with his, with his finger, right? And then that makes up a, a molecule that he is holding together, by his intentional will. And that molecule uh, makes up a cell that he is holding together with his intentional will. And at any given moment, if he decided not to allow this, this cell to stay together, it would just blast apart. It would be done. It would be over. But he holds it together. And thus, if he holds every part of every living thing together, he holds every living thing together. This is the power he has. This is the intention he has toward his creation. Which, what I love about that is both the utter power of that, right? He is just completely in control. And also the intimacy of that, right? The intentionality of that. That every single part of me, he is holding that together. 
Reminds me of when he talks about every hair on our head being numbered, right? Like, like that sort of intentional thought. He is not some sort of uninvolved being like the DS believe. He's right here intentionally with us, holding every single thing together, even when things seem out of control. Pointing on your handout if you want to fill it in is, Jesus has primary importance above every created thing because it was all created by him and for him and remains in existence because he intentionally wills it. Jesus has primary importance above every created thing because it was all created by him and for him and remains in existence because he intentionally wills it. Verse 18 continues with his preeminence. He says, He is also the head of the body, the church. Head, head uh, is obviously that part of the body that contains, you know, the brain. Um, it, 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 it is both the physical head, right? But it's usually used figuratively, meaning of primary importance or of high status or, or the key figure. Uh, if you lost your head, your body wouldn't do a whole lot, right? Um, it's, 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 it's central. Um, it's how we use, like, head of an organization now, right? Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 says it like this. It says, He put all things in subjection under his feet and made him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are the body, right? He is the head. He's the thing that keeps it all together. He's the one that's, that's, that's the most important. He's the top dog. And make no mistake, our priority here is that he's top dog here, right? That he is the central figure, both of the church at large, you know, the, the worldwide church, and of our little church here, that he is the head of it, that everything here revolves around him. That he is the reason why we are here and why we do the things that we do. And that his will for us supersedes any will we might have, any choices we might make. His will supersedes it all. He's the one who leads and we're the ones who follow. That's just the way it works. Now, he is the head, right? He is head over all the church. It's very, very clear here, right? He is the head of the body. And that is true whether we choose to operate as if he is the head of the body. That is true whether we choose to operate as if he is top dog. Whether we choose to see him as the reason why we are here. As we, whether we choose to allow him to supersede our wills, our wills to him or not. Whether we choose to follow him where he leads or not, he is still the head. But if he's the head, it makes all the sense in the world that we would make him head, that we would leave him as central, as central in this place, right? That he would be top dog, that he would be the one that we follow. He goes on and says, and it, he is the beginning, the start, the principal cause. He's the first domino in all the dominoes that fall down. He is the author of all creation. 
He started everything, right? And he is the firstborn from the dead. He was the first one to conquer death. Now, this doesn't mean that he was the first resurrection. Obviously, there were other resurrections that occurred. But, he, but this is talking about in the church. He was the first resurrection of the church that had many, 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 many resurrections after him. Now, he obviously resurrected physically, but we have all been resurrected spiritually, and that's been the case ever since uh, the day of Pentecost. Romans 6 uh, talks about this idea. He says, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. All of us join him in his physical death, burial, and resurrection with a spiritual death, burial, and resurrection. And now we live in this new kind of life with him. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So not only have we been raised uh, spiritually, but we will one day be raised physically, just as he was. Resurrection is a part of our story. Some of it just hasn't happened yet. He was the trendsetter. He was the first of many. Now keep in mind, the reason why all of this is being said is it says, so that, see that? He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that, for this purpose, he is God himself. He is firstborn in rank and time. He is the creator of everything. He is above everything. He holds everything together. He is top dog in the church. He's the first resurrection of many. So that, there's one purpose behind all of this, one primary purpose. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Again, we don't have to make him first place. We don't have to put him in that place in our lives. But that's the reason why he is all of those things. It is the justification why, for why he should be first place here and in our lives and in every aspect of our lives. Uh, when I thought about this, I <laughs> thought about baseball. Um, anybody know, oh, wait, shh, don't look at that. Anybody know who uh, has the longest uh, streak of, of most consecutive Major League Baseball games ever played? Cal Ripken, there we go. We got some baseball fans. Good job. Yeah, Cal Ripken Jr., he has the most ever. And if you look at the list, this is a sports record that literally will never, ever, ever be broken. He played 2,632 consecutive games without taking a single day off. If you look, the closest guy to him is Lou Gehrig, and that's from, the, from 1925 when things were very, very different in the game back then. And actually, everybody else on that list is all like, I think the oldest one is like 81 or something, right? They're all just old, 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 old players, right? Nobody plays every single day. Every player now takes a day off or two, right? He is first place on this list. He will never not be first place on this list. It's not even close. Right? Look, look at the eighth one. There. It's under 1,000. He's got 2,632. It's not even close. The point of that is not to exalt Cal Ripken. He's a pretty great player, though. The point is, 
He is first. Jesus is first. He is permanently affixed to the top of the list of everything that matters, every list that matters anywhere from all time. Matthew 10, 37 says this, The one who loves the father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The one who does not take his cross and love take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The one who has found his life will lose it. The one who has lost his life on my account will find it. If anybody else said these words, we would go, man, that's super possessive. Like, come on. You got to allow room for other people, right? You got to allow room for other priorities in life. But Jesus is the top dog. He is on top of every list that matters. And so, because he is that, we should make him first. And to make him any less than first is a problem. I mean, Jesus is very clear. He's like, you're not worthy of me. Like, if you don't, if you don't do this, if you don't put me in my proper place, you're just not worthy of following me. He's literally saying this to his followers. Like, go home. Why? Because he is first. He is all of these things so that we will make him first. In every moment, in every situation, in every circumstance. Imagine that. I mean, just think through every area of your life. Right? What would it look like to make Jesus the center and the most important figure in our church? Well, that one's not too hard to find, right? What would it look like to put Jesus at the center of your family? What would it look like to put Jesus at the center, the central figure of your marriage? Not either of you, but him. What, if, what, if, what would it look like to make him the central figure of your job, your work, the thing you do 40 hours a week? What would it look like to put him as the central figure, the, pri- the one of primary importance in your vacation plans? What would it look like to make him the, the top dog, the most important thing in your date night on Tuesday night? What would that look like? He is in first place. How do we make him that? How do we recognize that? How do we live as if he is? That it's all start to finish about him. Because that's what's called for. The point on your handout, if you want to fill it in, is Jesus is the central person of and the ultimate authority over his church and, in reality, all things. Jesus is the central person of and the ultimate authority over his church and, in reality, all things. He finishes with these couple of verses, or at least we're going to finish today with these couple of verses. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. The Father was fully pleased to allow his fullness to dwell in human form, which I, I don't know about you, but that seems like a pretty big demotion, right? Right? Like, come on. 
the God of the universe, the creator of all things, to dwell in, in, a, in a Jewish man 2,000 years ago. Like, what? But not only was he okay with it, not only did he sign off on it and go, okay, fine. He was fully pleased. He was delighted to have his fullness dwell in bodily form. And by the way, fullness is similar to what we looked at last week where you can't get another drop in, right? We had that like surface tension example, right? Like there's, there's not one more drop that could have gotten in. The fullness of who God is was lived inside of this body, this person called Jesus. It's interesting, um, you know, there's lots of heresies in the world that have existed for all time, um, but... Um, there are, are some out there who have, uh, who have kind of separated, like, the Old Testament God. The, uh, you know, Yahweh is this, like, domineering, vengeful, uh, jealous kind of God. And then you have Jesus who comes in and he's this loving, gentle, suffering servant, right? And they try to separate those two things. No, 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 no. Same God. And I don't think they're reading the Old Testament very well if they have that view of who God is in the Old Testament either. Jesus is just the perfect picture for us of his fullness. And, oh, where are they? And through him, in putting the fullness of God into this bod, into this person, into this human, through this human person to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Reconcile in this context means to bring a unifying purpose to people, that he would unify all things in all creation for the glorification of Jesus, to bring all things in all creation to him that the end of everything would be Jesus, that the goal of everything would be Jesus, that the purpose of everything would be Jesus. That's the reason why God came in a, in a, in a human form, was to, to, to make all ends end with him. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. I love uh, verb forms, and I love that this is a past tense completed action. He made peace. For all time, mankind has lived in this unending conflict with God, not because God, of God, but because of us. We started the fight. We started the war. Romans uh, 1 reflects this, a couple of verses from there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Who did it? We did it. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings and their sens senseless hearts were darkened. All roads were supposed to lead to God. All glory was supposed to go to him. And we were like, no, we, we want to go our own way. We want to make our own path. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their wrongdoings against them. Amen. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For those in Christ, he made peace for us. Past completed action. It's done. Through the suffering and the sacrifice and the violence that was inflicted upon him at the cross. The point on your handout, if you want to fill it in, is the fullness of God is in Jesus, enabling the long-awaited reconciliation of God and mankind. The fullness of God is in Jesus, enabling the long-awaited reconciliation of God and mankind. going to read the bottom of the handout together. It says in, no, sorry, uh, Jesus is number one. He is top dog. He holds that position by the fullness of his deity, his all-encompassing work in creation, and his preeminence over the church. The truths found in this description of Jesus mark him as utterly different from and immensely superior to any other person who has ever lived. His deity made him uniquely able to bring about a a restored relationship between God and humanity. Like all truths, we must live as if these these were true in order for them to produce the beneficial fruit that all truth promises. Will we make him top dog in our lives? Will he be number one in our hearts and minds? Will we we give him the place of supremacy in the church? There were just a few questions as we were going through on your handout. What does it mean for you that Jesus is so infinitely powerful over everything, yet also intimately involved in sustaining everything? What would it look like for you to place Jesus at the center of different areas of your life, work, play, family, community, on and on and on. And what do you appreciate most about the work Jesus did to make peace between you and your maker? Let me pray for us. Lord, we are so thankful that we are at peace with you, that we caused uh, a mess by our actions, by our behavior, by our choices, by not placing you first in our lives, by placing ourselves first, by making our our comfort, our, our um, passions, our desires more important than you. And um, we just don't want to do that anymore. We want to recognize that uh, because of the work of your son that, that we have been reconciled to you, that it's a done deal. And we want to live now seeing you as supreme, seeing you as everything that we need to be living for, everything that Uh, that we desire, everything uh, in our lives leading to you as the end, to the glory of you as the end. And sometimes that just seems a little abstract in certain areas of our lives, like how do we make this thing about you, this part of our lives about you? So Lord, just give us wisdom in how to do that. As we seek you, as we want that, may you be the end of every moment of our lives the one that we want to glorify in every moment of our lives because you deserve it. That's who you are.
pray this all in your name.